Hi. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Director of the Center for Translational Cognitive Neuroscience, Dr. Andrew E. Budson, MD, and author of Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. From misplacing our keys to recalling a new acquaintance's name, memory dominates everyday life. Changes can be incredibly alarming, especially as we age. How we differentiate between normal and abnormal memory changes in loved ones and ourselves. Doctors Andrew E. Budson and co-author Maureen K. O'Connor detail seven factors of memory loss and management. Dr. Budson is a consultant, is a lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School, professor at Boston University School of Medicine, consultant neurologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and associate Director for Research at the Boston University's Alzheimer's Disease Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Budson. Nice to have you here. Oh, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I guess the key is what's normal and what's not. I'm losing my voice here. (coughs) And what to do about it. Okay, so what is normal when we're talking about memory? Memory Right. The, The way I like to conceptualize the changes of normal memory and how they differ from those uh, that could be due to something like Alzheimer's. Uh, I think about a, a filing system analogy uh, for uh, memory. Our frontal lobes are like our file clerk. So they're the part of the brain that's in charge of bringing in a new information from the world and putting it uh, into the file cabinet. They're also in charge of uh, pulling that information out of the file cabinet when we need it. Now, in normal aging, the sort of analogy I I think about is that our frontal lobes, our file clerk, are getting older too. And if you think about the file clerk uh, maybe uh, not hearing quite as well as uh, when he was younger, uh, so information may need to be repeated a couple of times in order to get into the memory store. Our uh, older file clerk doesn't move as quick as he used to, and so it may take a little bit more time to pull the information out of our memory stores. And maybe he doesn't see quite as well, and so we might need a hint or a cue in order to find that right uh, file folder to get access uh, to the memory. But as uh, part of normal aging, as long as the memory made it into the file cabinet, then it should be able to be retrieved. Now, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, the problem is that the file cabinet itself uh, begins to be damaged and ultimately destroyed. And I think about that in our analogy. If you imagine there's like a big hole uh, when you pull open that file drawer, there's a big hole that information just disappears down. And so in that case, you can have the most uh, efficient uh, energetic file clerk taking information in from the outside world, putting it into the file drawer, but with Alzheimer's, it just disappears down that hole. And so even if information is repeated, even if we wait a little bit of time, and even if um, we're given a hint or a cue, that information can simply not be retrieved. And that leads to rapid forgetting when people will often repeat the same questions again and again, tell the same stories uh, again and again. Well, you're talking about that in terms of 
Uh, okay, go, <clears throat> go ahead, because yeah. I have a question. No, no, yeah. I, mean, I was just saying, so in a nutshell, <clears throat> those are sort of the principles, I think, of to help differentiate the changes that can occur in memory due to normal aging from those due to Alzheimer's. Well, given the aging population, and now there are so many people in their, let's say, 80s and 90s who don't necessarily have Alzheimer's, but I notice not only with with colleagues, with family, and unfortunately even with friends, who and and uh, <clears throat> who I have a, a for instance talk we just celebrated Thanksgiving and I had a friend whose ninety uh, <clears throat> year old mother was with us and that you just mentioned like in the normal aging process you have people who you can't uh, repeating things for instance and this person mm-hmm. doesn't have Alzheimer's but this and I see this in older people this constant repeating of the same thing even in the same conversation. Um, not just forgetting your keys or forgetting something well, that happened. Well, yeah. so you, you, what I would say, uh, in all honesty, is I would be a little bit concerned if someone is telling you the same story uh, in the same conversation more than once. That and that could be a little bit concerning. Now, it could be something simple like, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, they're not used to having alcohol, but on Thanksgiving, maybe they have a glass of wine or two, and that can interfere uh, with the memory. Maybe they had a, uh, a, an illness that was not making them at the top of their game. But I, I would be concerned if someone's uh, telling the same stories to the same person in the same conversation. So what is that? Would that necessarily be Alzheimer's, or is that just, I guess what I'm getting at, as your brain ages, and let's say you are 90 years old, does that automatically happen uh or is that something or is that you know what i'm trying to say is it sure sure so 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 like uh diabetes and high blood pressure and cancer uh as individuals get older um alzheimer's does become more and more common in fact the uh data show that over the age of 85 50% of people have Alzheimer's or another uh, dementia. So uh, statistically, believe it or not, it's more common that a 90-year-old actually uh, does have uh, perhaps a little bit of uh, Alzheimer's disease or another uh, problem. The the issue about rapid uh, forgetting is it, it tells us that our hippocampus um, is not functioning uh, properly. Uh, because the hippocampus is what is always paying attention to uh, uh, what we're saying and what we're doing and, and what we're uh, uh, observing. And so if it, things are being repeated, that is a sign that um, at least some, uh, the individual should be checked out. Next question, because <clears throat> what about medication? And older people often are taking a lot of medication. Uh, so the effect of medication on your memory, for instance, in this case, I know this person takes statins and, uh, you know, statins, at least, uh, you know, when I was knew I was going to interview you, I was kind of researching that statins may have an effect on one's memory, particularly in the elderly. Um, yeah. 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 No, I actually, I'm glad you, you brought that up. Um, so, uh, the, there are many different uh, medications that can uh, interfere with uh, memory. So the most uh, common ones that people take uh, that can uh, make the memory worse include uh, sleep medications, both over-the-counter sleep medications as well as prescription sleep medications, uh, 
cold and flu medications, some of the older allergy uh, medications, uh, almost all of the anxiety medications, any of the narcotic pain medications, muscle relaxants, and believe it or not, uh, some of the incontinence medications can actually uh, interfere with the memory. Now, now I do just want to caution uh, our listeners that uh, if you or someone you know are taking these medications, it's very important to speak with your doctor before you would either stop or lower the dose of any of these. Um, uh, seizures is just one of the side effects that could occur uh, with these types of uh, Medication. So you definitely want to speak with your doctor about them. But they all can interfere with the memory. Now, the statins is, is a very interesting um, case. Um, uh, many people, as they get older, uh, end up being put on a statin, and many people, as they get older, do have memory trouble. And so uh, people uh, worried and wondered about whether statin medications would interfere with the memory. And if you uh, look in the literature, uh, as you may have found, there are some small uh, case reports and small studies uh, suggesting that statins may cause uh, memory loss. But in fact, uh, the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative uh, uh, study, uh, which uh, combines over uh, 30 Alzheimer's centers across the country, did a very large study with over 1,000 individuals uh, looking at whether statins uh, not uh, worsen memory, but whether they might actually help memory. And this is because there's epidemiologic data that suggests that uh, uh, people on statins actually uh, did better and were less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. And what this very careful study showed was that, in fact, statins don't help the memory, but it also showed that they don't harm the memory. So if someone out there is uh, taking a statin medication to lower their cholesterol, uh, I would recommend that they continue it as long as their uh, doctor uh, prescribes it. Now, next question. What about someone may be experiencing the kinds of memory losses that we've been talking about? Do they themselves realize that they are, let's say, repeating things or not remembering things or that their behavior or their ability to uh, remember things is not normal? Yeah. What's the, yeah, what is the... Okay, go ahead. Sure, yeah, that's a very good question. And what uh, my experience uh, is, and it, it dovetails with uh, the literature, is that uh, very early on, most people are uh, a bit aware that they're having some uh, memory difficulties. Uh, sometimes, uh, perhaps, people feel like, well, I've... I've never had a good memory, or I know I'm having a good memory, but my, my neighbor doesn't have a good memory either, so you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps my memory loss is just normal, just due to normal aging. But for, for that reason or another, most people uh, do have some awareness uh, when their memory loss is, uh, is quite mild, although not everyone. Some people uh, really aren't. Then as the disease progresses, uh, people uh, literally forget the fact that they can't remember things. And at that point, uh, many people are uh, completely unaware uh, that they're having memory problems. So the bottom line is most people uh, do have some awareness uh, when the memory loss is starting, but then as it progresses, it's harder to remember that one has memory problems. Yeah, so it's a downward spiral, sort of a deterioration, I guess is what you're saying. What Then how do you approach 
uh, as a social worker, I'm interested uh, because many people, and I know, and here I'm giving these anecdotes, but my um, a friend of mine's mother who died recently, she was a very smart lady and all of this was happening to her, but she knew how to compensate. And I think sometimes the smarter you are, at least in the beginning, one tends to do that. So when she went into her home, into her apartment after she died and she found she had notes all over the place. And if she was going to meet Joe Smith, she had written down beforehand who Joe Smith was, what he did, what her his her relationship to him. Um, and that's how she and she did it well. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah. that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I would want to say is that I absolutely uh, applaud her. And uh, one of the whole sections of our book, uh, we yep. talk about what are all the different strategies and memory aids that one can use to keep one, uh, you know, living independently and doing all the things that one uh, uh, wants to do. And I think writing notes to oneself and, you know, using a calendar and staying organized, you know, all those things are absolutely fantastic. And I think that that is, is terrific. Uh, the reason that someone like that still might want to uh, get uh, her memory evaluated is that there are medications that are available today, uh, approved by the FDA, that can turn the clock back on memory problems. And what the literature shows is that if I give somebody with mild uh, memory problems uh, one of these medications, these are medications uh, such as uh, Denepazil, the brand name uh, is Aricept, uh, I can make somebody's memory uh, as good as it was perhaps last year. And although it's not a miracle drug, I can't make somebody's memory like it was 30 years ago, you know, if the memory has been getting worse over time, I can turn that clock back and uh, help them be uh, more functional for a longer period of time. Now, you also talk about that's that's medication, pharmaceuticals, but there are other ways to do it, too. Is it like exercise and diet? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, diet and exercise are are so important, and exercise of the two really has the strongest uh, data. So when I went to medical school, I was told that uh, once we reach adulthood, we don't make any more brain cells. But we have realized over the uh, last number of years that, in fact, we all make new brain cells throughout our life, and there's the largest concentration of these brain cells in the hippocampus in our memory file cabinet. And so when we exercise, we actually release growth factors from the brain that increase the number of cells that are being produced in the hippocampus. And believe it or not, even in older adults over the age of 65, you can see this increase in the size of the hippocampus by measuring it on an MRI scan. It's really amazing. And there is a direct correlation between the amount of exercise that one does, the uh, size of one's hippocampus, and how powerful one's memory is. So exercise, exercise, uh, exercise is... Now you just uh, said something, older person. You, you mentioned older people over the age of 65, and I think there was an article in the New York Times a couple few, man, I don't know, a few weeks ago about doctors treating um, or, or lumping people together, 70-year-olds with 90-year-olds, and that there's a huge difference developmentally in terms of, well, I would assume the aging brain, uh, amongst other things. Um, and 
and and but we've I well, I, I I guess just hearing you say well over sixty five, but isn't there a big difference between or is there a big difference or do you yeah, see a difference? No, yeah, no, I I don't disagree yeah. with you one one bit. I mean, th- this particular study uh, that uh, looked at people in that uh, age range, and I don't uh, I don't know if there's been individual studies that have looked sort of you know for each decade, but I absolutely uh, agree with you that. You know, the brain is uh, different as it continues to, to age. But I really would in, encourage uh, everyone who is interested in doing what they can to keep their uh, brain healthy and their memory strong to participate in exercise. I, I do know uh, there was one study, it wasn't one that used MRI scans, but that looked at individuals in their 80s and found that they uh, can also uh, see the benefit of exercise. And we recommend um, at least uh, 30 minutes a day of uh, aerobic exercise, and it can be broken up you know, into 10-minute increments if, if people want. So there is a lot of good evidence for exercise. In other the, words, uh, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, I would say, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the other thing you mentioned uh, was diet. And uh, for, for diet, what has been shown also in study after study is that the Mediterranean diet is uh, what shows the strongest uh, evidence. And so that includes fish and olive oil, avocado, fruits and vegetables, nuts and beans, and whole grains. So those are the things that are uh, most beneficial to eat. Now, I want to get back a little bit to the psychological aspects of all of this. Let's say I know sure. you recommend, obviously, if you're concerned about yourself and that you feel like you are not mem- remembering things that you used to or concerned about a loved one or if you're a caregiver, how do you approach someone, uh, a loved one, let's say? Let's say you are a caregiver and and they, you, how do you approach them in terms of, well, I think that you're losing your mind, obviously you're not going to say that, but you, uh, seriously, but in terms of like, I've noticed that you aren't remembering things or, it, you know, sometimes you have to be very careful uh, in terms of how you address someone so that they will get help, as you say, before before it's too late. Absolutely. You know, I do think a, a big uh, part of it, especially that us, uh, clinicians, you know, whether one's a, a, a nurse or a social worker or a, a doctor or a psychologist, you know, we all need to feel comfortable uh, talking with people uh, about uh, memory loss. And I do think it's sort of like how cancer was maybe 20, 30 years ago that people were sort of afraid of it and didn't even want to, uh, to bring it up, even the, the healthcare professionals. So the first thing is, I think, just becoming comfortable talking about it. But for any of your listeners out there, what I generally recommend is if you're, you know, you're listening to this, uh, this show or this uh, podcast, um, you, know, you can say, you know, Mom, you know, I always thought your memory was fine, but I was listening uh, on this radio show, and they were suggesting that you know, if you're having a little bit of trouble remembering things, uh, it may not be normal as one gets older. So maybe we should get it checked out. I heard there's medicines that could help. So that would be the approach that I would take. It would be, you know, sort of having the courage to talk with your, your family or your, your friend and, and saying, you know, I've gained some knowledge that this uh, may not be normal and also that something can be done to help. 
the, the two biggest uh, reasons that people don't want to uh, get an evaluation is either that they feel that their memory is normal uh, for aging, so that's why the education uh, is so important. That's one of the biggest reasons that we wrote the book is to help people understand what's normal and what's not. And then the other uh, part of it is the fact that we can actually do something about it. Uh, the medications today uh, actually help, and there's very exciting medications that are being developed uh, right now in clinical trials that will be available soon. And although clinical trials aren't for everyone, uh, some uh, individuals do want to participate, and the type of medications that are being developed include those that can actually use a antibody to actually remove some of these amyloid uh, plaques uh, from the brain that cause Alzheimer's disease. There's other medications that can stop the amyloid plaques from uh, forming. And then there are uh, even others uh, developed to help uh, boost up memory function even stronger. And all these uh, are in clinical trials uh, right now. So there's a lot that people uh, can do. So, Dr. Budson, where would you get that information? Let's say um, if you want, if one wanted to go online, if, if someone, whoever is listening to the show says, mm, that yeah. may be something we're interested in as a family, where do they go? I mean, well, yeah. yeah. A- absolutely. So I always think um, starting with your primary care doctor is the way to go. Uh, but if your primary care doctor isn't sure where you might go, if you're uh, interested in, in some of these uh, clinical trials, um, uh, on the web is uh, clinicaltrials.gov, uh, G-O-V, and that is the uh, website uh, that is sponsored uh, by the government that uh, lists all the different registry of trials. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association uh, also has a service called Trial Match to uh, hook up uh, individuals uh, with their uh, uh, with trials that are right for them. And I do have all these resources and more on uh, my website, which is uh, simply uh, andrewbudsonmd.com. So if anybody's uh, interested, they can find these resources and more on, on my website as well. Great. I mean, and obviously your book is a great resource. I mean, it covers so many things. We're just sort of doing a smattering this morning in this half hour. But, um, yeah, so Andrew, I wanted to andrewbudson.com. People can go uh, to andrewbudsonmd.com. Right. You got exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, what else in terms of, you know, you hear that, uh, you know, if you, and I think you mentioned this too in the book, you know, if you do puzzles and play games and do those kinds of things and keep your mind active, does that really work? I mean, is that enough? Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. It, is it's it? a great, it's a great question. And, you know, the, the studies show that if you do crossword puzzles in Sudoku, you get better at crossword puzzles in Sudoku. It just does not, unfortunately, translate into overall brain health. Uh, but there are things that, that do. And it turns out that in terms of things to do with your brain, social interactions are probably the most important thing. And I actually think, you know, in addition to the psychological uh, lift that, that gives us when we have uh, good social interactions, it's also what our brains uh, evolved for, was having uh, these types of complicated social interactions. So it really stimulates the brain uh, quite a bit. Uh, other things that have been shown uh, to help are learning something new 
And uh, it's particularly good if you can combine it with something that has exercise involved, so learning uh, ballroom dancing or uh, learning uh, how to do pottery or yoga or aerobics or uh, Pilates or, or something like that is wonderful, but maybe you're planning on taking a trip somewhere and you want to learn about the new place. You know, that's good too. Maybe you want to learn a bit of a language. Well, that's, that's wonderful as well. Or take another type of adult education course. All of those things are, are very um, helpful. Yeah, the, the things that are helpful, unfortunately, I think particularly in our culture, you know, get uh, connecting to people and, and, and being with people, we sort of live in the opposite. And as one gets older, it gets worse, social, social isolation, which obviously isn't good for you, for your health, mental or physical. Um, and people tend to get into routines, which is also the opposite of what you're saying. I think Eleanor Roosevelt said, do something different every day. It doesn't have to be something fabulous. You don't have to learn Latin, but just something different, right? And as you're saying, retrain your yeah. train. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. No, a, a, absolutely. But as, a, as a getting back to that, culturally, we don't do that. Our people get more and more isolated and more and more routinized. <laughs> um, so we sort of have to, yeah, turn that yeah. around. Yeah, no, I I totally uh, agree with you. And that is one of the dangers as people get older is that they can uh, be isolated. And I do think uh, the uh, retirement communities that are uh, sprouting up uh, in different places uh, are one uh, good option. Or people uh, just having a move back to uh, the city or the center of the town so that they can walk uh, from place to place and get exercise and run into people on the street as you're walking and, and talking. It's, uh, it's wonderful to sort of be in a neighborhood where one can walk around. And I know not everybody has that opportunity, but uh, I totally agree with you that it, it really is important. And there are some cities now that are really addressing that, cities to age in place in, for instance, and I, I think Philadelphia is one of them. And they, I think if one goes online, you can actually look up cities that are really good places for for individuals or families to age in place because they, as you, you can walk around, there are all the, uh, you know, there's access to to, to stores and, and uh, grocery stores and all those kinds of things and, and to other people, which is important. We only have a few minutes left. So what do we want to leave our listeners with? Besides, it's a great, I want to mention the book again, because it really is a good book for all of us. Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. And it's uh, Dr. Andrew Budson, uh, excellent book, great book uh, for uh, lay people. So uh, what, uh, give us a, so something to uh, sort of end the interview with. Sure, yeah. No, you know, I'll just sort of uh, mention, you know, one of the, the fundamental reasons that I wrote the book, which is that, uh, you know, my, my co-author and I, we really wanted to uh, empower people to have knowledge about memory. We wanted to help them understand what's normal and what's not normal. We wanted to let them know what should their doctor do uh, for a memory evaluation. Unfortunately, we've seen uh, sometimes that memory problems are brought up to their doctor, but their doctor doesn't uh, do uh, a full evaluation, so we want to let people know that. We want to let people understand how the memory medications work, uh, both uh, their effectiveness, uh, but also what are their limits uh, to help people understand what we've 
spoken about on the program in terms of the importance of diet and exercise, and then also that there are all sorts of strategies and memory aids that can be used to help one's memory in day-to-day place. And this is where even if one really isn't having any uh, abnormal memory problems and are just uh, aging normally, you too can still improve your memory through diet, exercise, and using these strategies and memory aids. So everyone uh, can improve their memory. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of really good information, Dr. Andrew Budson. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Marilyn Singleton. She's not only a doctor, she's a lawyer, a former congressional candidate, and our topic today is money, media, and medical care. Dr. Marilyn Singleton combines her experience as a board-certified anesthesiologist with her education in constitutional and administrative law to analyze the current 
healthcare environment, exposing the lobbyist interests of pharmaceutical companies and insurance providers. As a former congressional candidate in California, Dr. Singleton cares about the safety and health of the people. She graduated from Stanford University, UCSF Med School, and completed her anesthesia residency at Harvard's Beth Israel Hospital, and while working in the operating room, Dr. Singleton attended UC Berkeley Law School. She also teaches classes in the recognition of elder abuse and constitutional law for non-lawyers. Welcome to the show, Dr. Singleton. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, that is a very, very impressive resume of academics. I was telling somebody I was going to interview you this morning, and they were, wow, I mean, uh did you have time for anything else? I mean, you start uh, Harvard, Stanford, lawyer, doctor, um, and congressional and congressional candidate for uh, Congress. So how do you get how do you get that all in? But that's um, maybe that's my first question. <laughs> I'll tell you, it seems all through life, it seems like the more you have to do, the more you get done, and uh, that. Seems kind of, I think I got that from my father, and it's kept me in good shape all through life, and somehow still managed to have a great husband and a fabulous son through all that. Well, I, I guess I still stand in awe of you, and I, I think, um, I, I guess then, given all that, why the focus, and, and what made you decide to focus, uh, particularly, obviously, on this topic, money, media, and medical care, and because... Uh, uh, that is obviously something that's sort of in the forefront of all the political stuff that's happening today. So um, let's start talking about that. Money, media, what does that mean, money, media, and medical care? Um, I I think what started me on this is several years ago, I became so irritated with the direct-to-consumer ads from pharmaceutical companies. And it was almost amusing when they're telling people, oh, and if you've had liver cancer or you have AIDS, tell your doctor and don't take this medicine. And I'm thinking, where are they going to get this medicine? And why aren't they seeing a doctor anyway? And why would you be advertising these very intense medicines directly to the consumer to try to get them to go to the doctor and beg for it and strong arm the doctor into giving it. I I just found it odd. And the whole market saturation idea, it just sort of was sitting there in the back of my head. And then as all the healthcare reform and whatnot was coming out and you start to delve into it and see who was behind it, who was supporting it, who's gaining by it, you realize, or at least I felt, that at bottom wasn't really the patient, but who can make money off the new system. It wasn't that, a, isn't that a result of, well, they used to have ads on television for uh, alcohol and cigarettes, so they had to take, and those are big money makers, once they took that, those ads off, they had to replace it with something, or is maybe this is too simplistic, but, and so now they replace it with these consumer ads for uh, you know, lay people to go out and or to make to want all the pharmaceuticals and and it's sort of and that's how they make their money. Well, that's right, and and it's certainly no 
criticism. They're supposed to be there to make money. I find it very odd, however, and wonder how much money do they make from using these ads. The saturation is unbelievable. There's 5,000 ads a month. And and when you imagine that, that that was as of April, last April, of uh, penetration of these sorts of ads. So these companies aren't stupid. They only do things that are going to net them some positive gain. And it must be working. But the problem is some of these medications, my goodness, do people really need them? And again, advertising cancer medicines and and immunosuppressives and whatnot, it seems somewhat bizarre. Wouldn't a person who needed cancer medications or immunosuppressives already be seeing a physician? Well, what happens, does Dr. Singleton, do people actually, when you're, I mean, because these ads are on all night long, particularly during, let's say, the dinner hour from six to nine. So do people, can they actually remember the names of these drugs? I mean, and and then go to their physician and say, well, I want this drug to because I have cancer or heart disease or, you know, gastroenteritis. Does it, is that how it, does that actually happen? That does indeed happen, and I'm an anesthesiologist, so fortunately, there's only a few things that people come in saying they heard about. Uh, An internist must just be barraged, and I've spoken to some, and they do say patients walk in, and I'll tell you something. One of the drug representatives had told me about drug names, uh, that, and one of the reasons they're named the way they are is the most popular letter to begin a drug with is Z or X. And then other names kind of are a takeoff on whatever the chemical name is, the true generic chemical name. And patients remember these things. And in the days of DVR, where almost everybody has that, all you do is pause the TV and jot down a little note. If you had any of these conditions, it's certainly worth a quick pause on the DVR, write down the name, and uh, take it into your doctor. Oh, I heard about this. Uh, and you'd just be surprised how, well, actually not surprised, you're in the media, how powerful the media really is and uh, as, as a total entity in influencing how we think. And uh, people don't say, oh, I wonder what the chemical compound is or anything like that. It's a name. The people in the ad are frolicking and, and smiling and look very healthy. So I can look that way too. Let me, let me tell my doctor I want this medication. So what's the doctor's responsibility? What do they do? Like, they're, you know, the, the drug companies are, are uh, selling drugs to, to lay people, and then they go in and tell their doctor, I want this drug that begins with a Z or an X. What is the, I mean, does the doctor have to respond to that, or do they, are they being sold the same bill of goods from the drug reps on the other side? Certainly, doctors are learning about these drugs, and there's other ways other than the rep to learn about it, and more and more people are certainly reading articles, and just because a drug is advertised doesn't mean that it is not good. 
Jardiance, for example, is uh, many internists love it and on its own merits, having nothing to do with the constant ads about it. So some of these drugs are indeed good. It, what it does, in my opinion, giving, given that doctor visits are becoming shorter and shorter, that do you really want the entire visit being taken up with the doctor having to explain why drug X is not the drug for you? It's great on the actor on TV, but in your particular circumstance, this is not the drug for you. And yes, you have psoriasis, and yes, that drug may help some people with psoriasis, but I've been treating you for 15 years, and the particular variety of this problem you have is not one that responds to that drug. Okay, I just had to take up a minute and a half of my precious seven-minute visit versus being able to come out and say, over the years I've been treating you, I've been evaluating all the things that popped on and off the market, and this is what I believe is best for you. End of story, get the prescription. Got it. So, oh, yeah. you know, it, and it's something that can undermine the trusted relationship. And patients will leave. I remember when poor Michael Jackson overdosed on the propofol. Well, that's a staple of anesthesia. All these people are coming in. Am I going to die? Well, guess what? It's an anesthetic drug in the hands of skilled deliverers of that drug, not some poor, sad fool who's opening up an IV bottle on himself. And, you know, they didn't want it. Don't give me the Michael Jackson drug. So people are influenced by what they see. And... Here's another example that you give. Uh, you talk about the current opioid problem uh, is an example of how we are how the kinds of medications that we get are dictated by 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 money uh, rather than by maybe our medical condition. Let's talk about that. Oh, this this is something that's that's truly sad. Is many medications are cheap. And I mean very, very inexpensive. Drugs that have been around a long time, uh, hydrochlorothiazide for blood pressure, very, very inexpensive. It's, it's like the cost of an aspirin, a generic aspirin. And that, unfortunately, is true of opiates. They're cheap to make. It's a cheap chemical compound. And... For the insurance company, if you're saying, oh, let's give you drug X that has lower potential for addiction but is more costly, hasn't come out in generic yet because it's newer and people have been working on trying to have a non-addictive drug and whatnot, the insurer may not approve that. And whereas they will quickly approve a standard opiate. So guess what prescription is going to get written? And again, I can't tell you the difficulty in trying to go outside the formulary of these insurance plans. And you wonder, who are these people who are doing the reviews 
and what it takes for you to get all the way up to the physician level that you start off with a clerk and say, oh, well, that's not on the formulary. Well, this patient needs it because and go through the reasons the other things don't work. Well, why don't you try that? Well, I have tried it. Well, we'll let you try it for five more times. I mean, you can imagine. So it, it becomes futile, and here the fellow has X number of patients in the office, and it's getting frustrating. You have to call during business hours. They certainly don't have an after-hours doctor's line for folks to do it after they've seen their patients. And so it ends up, well, I'll write this script, and I'll write it for fewer pills or whatever, and, and I guess there won't be a problem. So we're all human, and, we're, and we don't live in a vacuum. And when people say, oh, don't write those prescriptions, that's the end of the opiate epidemic. Well, there's more to the story than that. So in other words, the way you're describing it, it would seem to me most doctors or physicians don't have the time to do what you've been talking about. I mean, they're not just not going to do that. So they, I don't know if give up is the word, but I guess they do, right? And they're prescribing these, these opioids that patients don't really need or shouldn't shouldn't have. Well, part of the problem is, and it's not even giving up the length of time. Sometimes it takes four weeks to get through to the level that you have to, to get your appeal heard by an appropriate voice. Well, what's your patient supposed to do for that four weeks while you're waiting for the appeal process? So, you know, even if you decided to devote your life to being on the telephone, it still is a time-consuming process. And that certainly is by design, in my view, because we all know if you have to take a long time to do something, in the old days when it was really difficult to return items, people just said, oh, forget it, unless it was a very expensive item. And that's how it is dealing with some of these insurers that, just beat you down, beat you down, beat you down. And by the time you get it approved, the patient has whatever problem the patient has uh, sitting there getting worse. So you have to do something. So what do we as consumers do? I mean, is there any recourse for us? I mean, you know, we can sit and blame the insurance companies and we can sort of place the blame on everybody. But I think you sort of pointed out uh, that, or you have pointed out that uh, maybe we have to take a look at some of our rules and regulations and our congressmen and women, and uh, maybe they can do something about it. That's right. There's so many ways that we as consumers can use our power. And in fact, there is a fellow running for Congress in San Diego who part of his shtick is that he will put whatever bill is being put in front of him and he's going to put it to the constituents and he has he's going to have an online poll type thing and the people can vote. Do they want it or do they not want it? And he says he'll vote the way the constituents vote. And this is something that certainly is happening less and less in Congress where the parties are so partisan and they only vote with their party and not necessarily what their constituents want or are the constituents even asked. So we have to be demanding 
of our representatives. And on a personal level, we have to look at medical options. More and more and more basic care is being done in the direct pay mode. (laughs) Excuse me. And one of the things where we can meld changing the laws in Washington plus getting into the direct pay mode is making sure that the laws about health savings accounts and allowing catastrophic plans to be sold to anyone, not just people under the age of 30 or somebody with a special exemption, that are true, very inexpensive, high-deductible plans that realistically, for the most part of your life, most people aren't sick. One or two things may happen. They'll have a child and they may fall off a ladder and break their leg because looking at auto accidents and whatnot, your auto insurance will take care of the medical bills for that. And direct pay practices have incredibly low prices. Doctor visits for $50, things that if you set this aside, and my husband and I actually worked out the Starbucks coffee rule and add up all the money people spend on Starbucks coffee that you could easily pay for these things out of pocket and eliminate the middleman. You could get the drug, the exact drug that your doctor wanted to give you without a full song and dance. And there is no question that insurance is a good thing when it is insurance insurance for unexpected events, not for day-to-day taking care of your life. That's what we need to do, and we need to focus on ourselves. So you say, find, so what you're saying is, do you find a direct pay medical practice? Uh, Because I know I have uh, here an example of uh, selfpaypatient.com. Yes. Yeah. And and that's just one example, and there's various websites, and you can Google direct pay practices or direct primary care, and there's various sites people sign up for, and the doctor posts their prices, and uh, there's maps. There's another one called thewedge.com, and you click on the doctor's office, you learn about the doctor's office, all the prices are posted, some of the simple labs are done in-house, the the typical panel that a doctor might get, $13, and then in the direct pay system, the doctors have uh, partnerships with pathology labs, radiology labs, where instead of the CAT scan being $2,000, which part of that money goes to pay all the middlemen involved in the business office who has to write up the uh, claim form, et cetera, that when it just goes direct, CAT scans can be $300. So if a person is disciplined and for all the money you'd save in the high premiums, and you just set that aside for your catastrophic deductible and some day-to-day issues, you'd come out ahead. 
there, you know, I, some of this, I, I feel like I, I really am hearing it for the first time, and I imagine a lot of other people as well. So I assume this is something that you are, uh, I mean, you are on the bandwagon for. Are there other people working with you to, you know, I mean, yes, you're on the radio and you have public appearances. Are there are groups that are uh, part oh, of this agenda? Yeah. Absolutely. Um the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons uh, on their website, it's aapsonline.com, uh, that there's actually a place patients can click on and there's probably about 1,500 doctors on there that are direct pay doctors. There's an organization called um, Docs for Patient Care and it's been working on this issue for years, and its sole focus is having direct pay primary care. And there's various models where a family can pay $50 a month, just a flat fee, and then they get everything they need for the $50 a month, and individuals usually is about half of that. And uh, there's all sorts of ways various folks have pulled their practices together. But one of the things that people realize and why there's doctors starting to come on board for this model, which is amusing because that's the old-fashioned way to do it uh, back when my father was living and practicing and you charge people what they could afford and really know the patients, and if they've fallen on hard times, you let it go, knowing that they'll come back with something else. or Doing they, it on a sliding scale. We only have 30 seconds left, so. <laughs> so, uh, this, is, this is, it's out there, and doctors are trying to fill a need that patients have. Patients want a trusted relationship, and they really don't want a lot of middlemen in there, and it's up to us to seek these things out, and you'd be amazed at the positive results. Well, Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and we've been talking about money, media, and medical care. Lots of good information. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.